previously on Popping Collars. Especially when you find yourself on a Romanoff family cruise. Right. (laughs) Weirdness. And there's a horse on a... (laughs) Just what's the, what's the what's the line that the guy has at the table? Is we're from the Sarasota Romanos. Right. <laughs> yes, I immediately thought of you, Merle. Uh, I'm sure there's got to be some Palm Beach Romanos, right? There, there, there might be. There might be. Welcome to Popping Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and pop culture. My name is Greg Knight. I am the director of children and youth ministries at the Church of Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. With me are my co-hosts, Liz Easton. Liz, where are you and what are you up to these days? Hey, Greg. Um, I am the canon to the ordinary for the Diocese of Nebraska. And on a purely personal note, I'm struggling with the daylight savings. Mm. I hate it. Yeah. I feel like every year it's an aging thing. Like I grew up in Seattle. I should be used to short days, lots of gray, lots of dark. Mm -hmm. But every year this seasonal change just gets worse and worse. So I feel like we're recording at like midnight. We're not. We're not. (laughs) (laughs) It's 830 where I live. (laughs) We're actually our state's looking to get rid of it. I'm I'm curious. Like, yeah, I'm curious to see if any more states sort of follow suit. It's yeah. time. The point of daylight savings time is no, it has come and gone. It's, it's, it's shelf life is definitely over. Uh, more more hot takes like that coming later on the show. <laughs> Here we go. And uh, let me finish introducing the panel. Ricardo Avila is back with us. Ricardo, where are you and what are you doing? Greg, hello. I am the rector at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Los Gatos, California. Where uh, here it is 6.42 p.m., if I'm allowed to actually timestamp our podcast recording. And uh, it has been dark for um, 45 minutes, and it's, it is strange. Yeah. It, it does feel like it's 10 p.m. But, uh, no, I'm doing well. Mondays – oh, I, we record on Mondays. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Mondays at Ricardo's really pulling back the curtain on <laughs> <laughs> Mondays are my day off, and I was up in San Francisco today, reliving the days when I was fabulous. And we have a special returning guest with us, Kevin Matthews. Kevin, tell us where you are and what you do. All right. I am in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I am the campus and young adult missioner for the Diocese of North Carolina in Greensboro at St. Mary's House, where one Greg Knight used to be a member So thank you, Kevin, for coming on the show. This is episode 95 of Popping Collars, and our topic today is pop culture across generations. We've got a special treat this time, guys. We have, depending on how you define it, either three or four generations represented on this podcast, ranging from the post-baby boomer generation called Generation Jones, as in keeping up with the Joneses, uh, through the highly valued in religious circles, especially millennials. What stands out to me about that span of time is that it coincides with the advent of television, the creation of rock and roll, punk, hip-hop, music, and the technological sophistication of cinema. And therefore, 
even if we aren't all touched by the same media, we can all claim to have been affected in some way by mass media. Uh, I have a question for the panel to get us started, though, and it's kind of a big one, but I think it will clearly delineate where we're each coming from. What is the most consequential cultural moment that you would say defined your generation? And Kevin, I hate... I hate it for you, but we usually ask our guests to kick us off. So, <laughs> so do you have a moment to offer us? All right. Well, first, that means that I have to uh, um, own up to being the uh, Generation Jones person in this panel. That's a, uh, a, a, a term that I didn't even know existed all that long ago. A, I still thought I was a baby boomer. Most people define it for us as the Kennedy assassination. Hmm. uh, um, um, by far because uh, everybody does literally know uh, including myself I was seven I know where I was I know exactly where I was when I heard that because um, that was Camelot is dead uh, even though I wouldn't have known that it it wasn't until I was older that I actually got some of that for me the more defining moment was 1968 Uh, two assassinations it's a um, the, the Democratic Party in Chicago riots yeah. in the summer. Ricardo, do you have a culturally defining moment for your generation? First of all, uh, I'm pushing back against the generation idea. Obviously, the, the, those are ways that we use to organize information. Um, but I don't, and in term, but in terms of defining things. So I, I was thinking about this question earlier. So I, I was born in 1966. And what I saw was baby boomers were 46 to 64. This Generation Jones business I've never heard of until you just brought it up. (laughs) So I'm skeptical already. Um, And then I heard Generation X, 65 to anywhere from 1979 to 1984. So I'm Generation X, and I'm happy to take that appellation on. But uh, I would say uh, the defining moment of my generation, I looked it up frankly. (laughs) And uh, the top few were uh, the Berlin Wall, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Uh, And that was interesting. Um, But, you know, and and then uh, this one actually did affect me more, the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. Mm. So that actually was a big deal in my life, because that's when I was coming out. I was, I turned 18 in 84. And it affected how I stepped into the world pretty intensely. Interesting. I'm I'm definitely going to come back to this idea of like defining ourselves because I think that that is something that we do. And I think it's a trap. I think you're right. I think it's a trap that we kind of fall into because it's just a way of differentiating ourselves sometimes. But, um, but before I do that, Liz, yeah. do you have a cultural moment that you would like? I have to share? a few, Greg. So, <laughs> so I'm sort of, um, depending on how you look at it, technically a millennial, Although I think that some would say not. So I was born in 1983 and the millennial generation begins in the early 80s. And I think that what differentiates my little generation between Gen X and the actual millennials is that I was not a digital native. So like I didn't grow up with the Internet or computers the way that I think people who are typically defined as Gen X are. We didn't get the internet until when I was late in high school. So that seems key. 
I think that 9-11 was a defining cultural moment for my generation, which that happened, 9-11 happened right before I began my freshman year of college. And that was really a, like it changed everything in America. And I remember people saying at the time, this will change everything. And I remember thinking, how? I don't know. I don't see that. And, you know, as it turns out, I think that was basically true. One thing that is true of our panel, we may not be, you know, we'll get into the whole generation thing and like whether or not those are arbitrary markers or not. But one thing that is true is that we were all born in different decades. So Liz is 80s, Ricardo, your 60s, Kevin's 50s. I was a 70s kid. I feel like we've all kind of marked the things by sort of tragic circumstances have happened because that was one of mine was um, mine was probably the challenger explosion. And the reason is because um, there's something about how those, how that first major tragedy that you consume as a child kind of traumatizes you moving forward. I think I was born in 77. So the challenger explosion was when I was seven. And that was the first time I realized that like horrible things can happen. I think in the world. Hmm. Um, and, and so that became, and it happened on television. I mean, I, I guess that's the other thing is that horribly you could watch it on a loop. Like, you, you know, it, they would show replays of this horrible uh, incident over and over again. And I think that that kind of, um, that makes an imprint on you also, uh, because I think that that's true of the nine 11 day, especially like how that tragedy was just on a loop and mm-hmm. we saw it over and over and over again and we're traumatized by it over and over and over again. I wonder if we're just trying to by by using generational labels we're just trying to say broad things about people as inarticulately as possible <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, I'm skeptical of generational theory to an extent. I have found it helpful in some parts of my ministry from time to time, particularly around like fundraising is a great example. I think that we can see how broadly speaking, different generations give money in different ways. So you talk about giving money. That's just an example. But I think that oftentimes it's a way for us both to criticize our parents and criticize the, our younger siblings or the generation that comes after us. So if, if you know, you're not necessarily talking about yourself, it gives you the language to critique uh, people both older than you and younger than you <laughs> at being in um, standing indifference to them. And since we're all individuals, like there are definitely parts of the millennial um, narrative that I don't, that don't resonate with me at all, like at all or with my friends. So it's hard for me when I hear some of that stuff. I will also say that working with younger folks, there are times when those generational theories come up and I can point at them and, and see a trend. So it's probably both. And I mean, there is something experiential as much as we can push back against those labels. There is something about the fact that you experienced 1968, Kevin, and I didn't. And so that informs who you are as a person, right? Yes, but but the, I think where the problem comes in is that everything you experienced, all the major events, I experienced too. Right, right, <laughs> right. And, it's, and there's a collectiveness about that, and you know, and, and one we missed, by the way, that it's a, um, that I would also say was a defining moment was Watergate. It's a, um, that's when I was, and, and that's when I was coming of age. I was 18 when, when, when Nixon resigned. So, um, and I can remember watching 
the Watergate hearings every day at work. Yeah. So for me, I, I think uh, at least when we use the generational labels to talk about cultural things, what we're usually talking about is white middle class. Right. Um, right. Because, yep. you know, I'm the son of immigrants uh, who came from Mexico in the 50s and I was raised in the Midwest. And, you know, I was 16, 17 or whatever when The Breakfast Club and all that stuff came out. So that's sort of my demographic time, the John Hughes movies. But I, I didn't. I didn't relate to that. I was like, that must be some high school that I don't go to. Um, I, I could relate to some of the stuff, like the interaction, like there's the jock and there's the you know princess or whatever it was. It's more than a broad brushstroke. I think it's actually a defining thing that actually leaves out the larger portion of the population. So it's it feels like we're living in a time where so many articles and so many, I, I can't tell you how many, articles I read seemingly on a weekly basis, which are, which start with the headline of how do you get millennials to X or millennials are doing this to have ruined. something. Yeah. have killed international house of pancakes. What are we going to do? <laughs> like, you know, oh, something, oh, something. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's just this, it's just this kind of, it's, it's a thing that's out there. Like I remember the local news at some point, it was like, uh, are millennials the reason that Dunkin' Donuts is changing its name or something? You know, it's, it's just like really obnoxious, weird stuff, but it, it feels like there's so much more, kind of um, trying to figure out either this generation or generations in general, here are the reasons millennials aren't going to your church, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, top 10 list or something like that. And it's, it's like, why, why is there this desire to write about this stuff or to explore this stuff or to try to figure this out um, in a way that maybe it doesn't seem like we were trying to do that with previous generations. I don't know. But it, it does feel like a thing. I read those articles and they're, 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 they're mostly garbage. Because, <laughs> uh, uh, well, they're, they're garbage because they're these one side uh, fits all sort of descriptions of millennials or, you know, any other generation that's a, um, that, oh, the thing you need to do is you need to do traditional worship, in, in a, because they're all fascinated by traditional worship. Well, no. Some of them are fascinated by traditional worship. Right. Most of them wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. But there are enough of them out there that there, you have churches out there that have got a group of millennials coming to that traditional church. So that's the proof that, it's, that they all want it. I just think that, that those attempts to generalize, and I think, Ricardo, you're right, it's still mostly aimed at white middle-class people. When you hear or read those stories, it's never about how do I get black millennials into my church. It's, you know, it's never about how to get Hispanic uh, millennials. And you might see one about how to get gay uh, millennials into your church. It's, uh, you know, and the, you'll see the word welcome in uh, every third sentence. Uh, um, but, <laughs> every third word. Uh, but otherwise, they don't care. <laughs> it's, uh, um, yeah. uh, you know, because what yeah. they're really saying is we want to get um, their money back into our church. Well, that's what I was going to say that I'm curious that I would guess that the baby boomers were the first generation that people, particularly advertisers started paying attention to generations 
for. So prior to that, like we can't name quite as many strata of generations. And that was because in the baby boomers, there was this huge group of teenagers who were consumers. So at the end of the day, it comes down to marketing and it comes down to money. And the, and sadly, as you just mentioned, Kevin, I think that's true for the church too. I wonder if all of those articles that are coming out about, you know, how to reach millennials and get them to come to church doesn't speak more to um, the church than it does to millennials and yeah. the desperation uh, mm-hmm. that the church feels. Mm-hmm. And I would say that some of that desperation is because maybe just as a culture – having nothing to do with millennials necessarily, we've reached a point where we're probably not going to have the great church of the future. You know, it's all in the past. And we're at this tipping point where people have gotten so secular or religion is just one of many options, uh, really. And so this is kind of a, we've got to get the young people because otherwise the church will be gone in 25 years because they're not going to come. And how do we do it? And so there's this desperation. And I understand it, but I don't, I don't like it when it feels like here's what you have to do and here's what will work because mm-hmm. that's again, old, older people trying to, trying to act young or know what the young people want. And that if we just gave them the perfect formula, they'd be flocking to our church when, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, I think it's just a cultural change that we maybe have to accept. That doesn't mean we're going to sit down and wait to die as a church, but um, we're going to be Jesus in the world as we've always been with a mind to let's love one another and try to reach those people who wouldn't necessarily come through our doors, not from desperation, but from the same old thing of like, we think we have a message to offer that anyone of any generation can hear and be inspired by. What will change and already has changed and is passing is the the cultural expectations about what church is in our community, in this idea of civic religion, which passed a long time ago. Um, and I think that one thing that we can learn from, or I guess hope for, or look to in a younger generation, which you just mentioned, Ricardo, was this idea that um, there are lots of options. There are lots of ways to find meaning. So I would imagine that a person finding the church today, whatever age they are, are looking for a real thing. What you were saying, Kevin, about the traditional worship thing, and I, I totally agree because I don't find myself there. Most of the time, like whenever I see sort of the words traditional worship, I'm like, yeah, okay, uh, I'll find something else to do. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, right. But uh, the other side of the coin that can also not serve us well is chasing after sort of things that we think people are making meaning out of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, I rem- I am old enough to remember a time when, like, you two Chris were going to save our church or something. <laughs> it's like that's such a specific pop culture moment to really put your eggs all into that one basket. It was already passing. (laughs) Even when they were happening, they were not attracting young people. They were attracting people who who were at least back in the 80s and remembered uh, U2 from Pride, (laughs) from the Unforgettable Fire, Joshua Tree. So they were already hitting one step behind where they were trying to get. I think I think that's the thing is that you know we take our marketing cues from pop culture but pop culture doesn't last long enough for the folks making decisions like who can keep up with a news cycle today and like to think that like your church can speak to sort of 
things the way that the culture can speak to things in the moment, you know, week to week. Like this podcast comes out every other week and it feels like we're barely keeping up with the popular culture most of the time. I think about worship that and Episcopalians aren't going to like this, but I think the beautiful worship done well is important. So whatever that looks like, if it's beautiful and it's done well, it's probably going to be good. And um, other than that, I don't think that liturgy is the answer and Episcopalians desperately want it to be. And at least in our diocese, we have churches that are growing by leaps and bounds that still use right one. We have churches that are growing by leaps and bounds that use contemporary worship that is hard, you know, barely hangs on to our liturgical structure. And what people are flocking to is the community and the integrity of the people that they meet there and evidence that a person's life has been transformed by that community. It very rarely has to do with the words spoken in the liturgy. And one of my favorite things, sometimes I have the opportunity to work with churches that are growing so quickly that they need to add another worship service because their parking lot can't hold the people or the pews can't hold the people. And always there's a group, it's usually the vestry, who's like, okay, so let's try like putting up the big screen and let's try, we'll have coffee or, you know, whatever it is. And it's like, you're ignoring the fact that your church exactly as it is grew this much. Like just add another service, like just keep doing what you do well. Don't make up some <laughs> weird thing that maybe a millennial will like. Yeah. Right. But like already you're doing it. The jumping the shark moment for me <laughs> was I was in Long Beach. This is a couple of years ago. You know, Pokemon Go was the big thing. You see people around in parking lots looking to kill the little things. And um, apparently they were making little Pokemon stations or at churches the the Pokemon makers made the church a site where you could go. And, yep. and so I saw something in the Episcopal News Service like, oh, you know, take advantage of this. You know, people are putting Pokemon people welcome. And they would have refreshments for them and flyers about the church. And, and I actually kind of fell for it. I was new. I was the interim rector. And I, I did went so far as to print out an 11 by 17 thing you could print out that they gave you, you know, print this out and put it up. And then I looked at it and I thought, I can't do this. I just can't do it. I don't know. It just felt depressing somehow. It felt really desperate or well, something. Especially because the makers, <laughs> talk about cynical, the makers of Pokemon picked neighborhood churches because they needed a thing that wasn't going to change. Like they needed a, <laughs> they needed a marker. Like, right? Put a coffee shop or a yoga studio there because in six months, that'll be a different thing. So like, here's a thing that'll never move. Mm-hmm. Let's make that, you know. For the longevity of our game, let's make that a thing. And the, and the reality is nobody had to walk into any any church building anywhere no. to use no. the Pokemon. The Pokemon yeah. wasn't found <laughs> in the tabernacle. I don't know. I, <laughs> I never went that far. I will say kind of separate from trying to sell something, I love the idea of bringing in music that is meaningful to us from our own lives that aren't hymns necessarily and um, folding them into liturgy, not necessarily to try to attract other people because that's, that wouldn't be the point, but to enhance the, you know, the spirituality, the, the, the power of a liturgy. So we had an all soul service in our Memorial garden last week. And, you know, um, there's a, we hired a guitarist who teaches lessons on our campus and, he played a, a Roseanne Cash song, which was beautiful. God is in the roses. 
Mm-hmm. And it's about life and death. It's she wrote it after her dad died, Johnny Cash, and and then he sang another song uh, that was in the movie uh, Inside Llewellyn Davis. Is that what it is? The Coen yeah. Brothers yeah. Uh, with Oscar Isaac, and uh, uh, it was written by Marcus Mumford and Oscar Isaac, I think. Fare thee well, and it was a beautiful kind of lament and a goodbye. And you know, it was music that you don't hear in church, but it's a new way of experiencing something like an All Soul service in a memorial garden. And to me, at least for me personally, I felt moved. And I got a lot of comments intergenerationally about how uh, beautiful that service was for the folks who attended. Um, so I, I don't discount the music of, you know, of popular culture. Uh, I just sort of look askance at the, the that again, I'll, I'll use the word desperation, the, the desperate kind of move to try to use it to make people come to our church and make ourselves more relevant as if we're more relevant when pop culture is in inside yeah. our walls. Yeah. So I think that Christianity is, you know, for for me, it it is and was and will always be relevant. Like the message of Jesus is a timeless and eternal message that we're the ones who are screwing it up. But <laughs> like it, it it is relevant. Like it just is. You can't get through. I don't know what I would do in this political climate without my faith. Like, I don't know how I would interpret decisions that I have to make, actions that I have to take. Like, I don't know how I would do it. And that is as fresh and as relevant as anything can possibly be. Well, the uh, the, the flip side of that same coin is Christianity has always um, looked at what's in the culture, you know, down from, you know, Paul and, and, and Athens has always looked at what's going on in the popular culture and said, how can we um, communicate through what people know what we're trying to say about God? What, Ricardo, you were talking about at that service, it's a, you know, with the uh, Roseanne Cash song. It's a, um, we need to recover that ability to use these things in a way that actually enhances people's understanding. last segment though which is oh. our staff pick Shoot. which if you don't know what a staff pick is by now you should yeah, we don't need to explain this anymore embarrassed if yeah. this is your <laughs> first time listening to popping collars go back and listen to a previous episode to find out what a staff pick is ricardo you have our staff pick this time what have you got i do greg it's a book well the book is called i'm still here black dignity in a world made for whiteness and it's by a woman named Austin Channing Brown. She works uh, for nonprofit religious organizations, and she is straight up. I mean, she the book is it's it's compulsive reading, and it's only like 180 pages. But she tells stories about where she's come up with uh, kind of confronted racism among well-meaning people, and she parses out the particulars of why some of the behavior she's had to deal with is not okay. And when she explains it, it's so clear. You know, if I can say, if I would say it in a nutshell, I would say 
I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown is really incisive and insightful. She yeah. is a Christian. She's worked for nonprofit religious faith organizations, and she's African-American, and she's had to deal with racism in the most well-meaning environments that, uh, that you can imagine. But with every well-meaning environment comes a sense, I think, that, oh, we've got it right. You know, we don't have much to learn. And if someone's going to try to teach me something, I'm going to put them in their place. And so her stories in this, it's really great. It's really compelling reading. Her stories are about how she wouldn't let herself get put in her place, you, you know? Um, I had a professor that I was a um, PA for who, who would basically put it that we have all been raised with the notion that you can know something about somebody by looking at them. And looking at the color of their skin. And once you've been raised with that basic notion, yes, we're all racist at that point. <laughs> so, you know, yep. Power differentials mean a lot in there, but we all are using race to define something as if as if you can know anything about anybody right. by the color of their skin. Yeah. I want to make a side plug. Um, the author has a, a website. Um, I think it's it's Austin, like the city, Channing like Channing Tatum, <laughs> austinchanning.com. And there are resources there for how to talk about this. There are events and book signings and uh, a blog. There's really a lot of uh, helpful information. And I think some of it is faith-based. You know, how do you deal with this in a faith organization? So there's some really valuable stuff that goes, not just the book, but but with this. Um, it says, join this community of reconcilers. And... Um, so she's trying to do something more than just point it out. She's trying to create change. Um, so I, it's a great book. You can find Popping Collars on the web at poppingcollarspodcast.com. You can find us on all the social media platforms. Just type in Popping Collars in the search bar. And if you don't know what social media is, don't worry about it. Um, and of course, you can get our podcast in all of the usual podcasting apps, including Spotify now. So there's really no excuse for not subscribing to the show at this point. Uh, finally, you can find our show and lots of other wonderful Episcopal podcasts on EpiscopalCafe.com. We love EpiscopalCafe.com. We know you will as well. Check them out for all your Episcopal news needs and beyond. How's that for some marketing to millennials right there? <laughs> yeah. Episcopal Cafe. Boy, that's a, that's a millennial site if I've ever heard of one. And, <laughs> and with that, that is Popping Collars for this time. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank you, Kevin, for coming on the show. We will see you next time. And keep those collars pop. Thanks, Liz. Pop, pop. <laughs> <laughs>